Thank you very much, Bill. Good morning, everyone. What a beautiful Sunday this is. What a great opportunity that we have already had and taken advantage of to worship our Father in heaven, to sing praises to Him. I'll say this just very quickly, um, just before I forget. Uh, I will not be here next week. I'll be at Mars Hill with the family in uh, Valonia, preaching on their Friends and Family Day, which means I'll miss the graduation Sunday that we'll get to have. So uh, I know Lincoln's here and probably a few others, but I know some were gone with Sean. Uh, but uh, just wanted to express my uh, congratulations to our graduates, my well wishes to you. And I have an article in the bulletin, I think, next week uh, written to you. If not, it'll be in the, the Daily Bread sometime next week as well about that. But it's a huge milestone. It's a big deal to graduate high school. You get to go out into the, the big wide world and be disappointed with it as the rest of us are. So... <laughs> But maybe you can contribute something positive to it. That's something that needs to be said to every graduating class. Because it's really easy to get cynical and to be bitter and to say the world stinks and I'm just going to make it worse. No, the world stinks. You can make it better. Be the one who makes it better. So that's my message to our graduating ones. All right, as you know, our theme this year, as we've been considering in our sermons, has been about God, which is not saying much as we talk about Him all the time, and rightly so. But our sermons in particular are focusing on the Father in heaven and on God as this one who is and who was and who is to come, this eternal being who is worthy of all of our exhortation and praise and honor and glory that we have to give. I want us to consider from that idea this morning a simple sermon, the names of God. Now my name is Matthew Leon Martin. Each one of those names carries significance to me and is important to you because without those names you don't know who I am you need my names to help identify me for help to help you uh, categorize me and and set me apart from everyone else who is out there you can't just call me that guy because there's a lot of guys in the world you can't even just call me that guy named Matthew a lot of us out there as well and you can't even just call me that guy named Matthew Martin there's a few of those too I haven't hunted them all down yet, but there's a few of them still out there. And not even Matthew Leon Martin does it perfectly, but at least within the sphere around which I am existing, there's probably just only one Matthew Leon Martin. So you need those names, your first name, a middle name, and a last name. And each one of those carries significance in terms of what they were, why they were given to me. Matthew was named my name because Matthew means gift of God. And I mean, the middle name, Leon is significant because it's a family name. It was my father's middle name. It's my son's middle name, Caleb's. It's my middle name. It's my father's middle name. It's his father's middle name. It's his father's first name. So it's a family name. And Martin is a surname. We all have surnames. We all have uh, a last name that denotes our family, our tribe, our household. So we need names because without that, we're just a bunch of people and we're all alike. We need something to set us apart because otherwise we're all the same. Now let's talk about the names of God. Let's talk about the so-called names of this one who doesn't need your help setting him apart. Let's talk about the names of a being who is and there is no other like him, who was when there was no other but him, and who will be when no one else will still be. Let's talk about the names so-called of God. When you talk about the names of people, you mean a specific proper word to describe them and separate them from someone else. When you talk about the names of God, you're not talking about it in that term. You're talking about God's power. You're talking about God's authority. You're talking about God's dominion. 
You're even talking about God's blessings, which the Bible describes as His name, which falls on people. In terms of the names of God, if you were to go in that kind of vague, broad kind of way to look at it, and you start flipping through your Bible, what are all the ways that God describes Himself? There's a lot to find. But really, there's only a small number that have a bunch of derivatives added onto them. You have a few key words that God prefers that we think of or that is used to best describe Him in a way that our feeble minds can grasp the infinite being. And those handful of terms, those handful of words or phrases have additions and modifications and things that, that change and variations of them that are found all throughout Scripture. So I want to focus on just three big ones, and as we look at these three, we'll look at the, the uh, variations of them as well. The first is El, a word which means mighty. Another one is Adonai, a word which means master, or your Bible might call it Lord. And the last one is YHWH. Uh, Yahweh, which in most Bibles is translated as Jehovah, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's start, just because it's funny to do so, let's start in the second of those three. Let's not start with El, let's start with the middle one, Adonai, Master. I'll say this again when it's more relevant, but just because I'm thinking about it now, it's, it's curious to think about our Jewish friends when they are reading Scripture aloud you have the way you would write the word God, pen to paper. You have the way you would read the word God. And the, you have the way you would talk about God. And our Jewish friends have different ways in which they describe God, whether it's pen to paper, whether they're reading what was inspired, or they're talking about Him just on their own. And the way when they're reading Scripture out loud and they come to YHWH, when they come to a different word than Adonai, when they come to Yahweh, they'll say Adonai. When they're reading Scripture, and it says something like, and the Lord, and that's YHWH, instead of saying Yahweh, because they don't want to profane the word Yahweh with their uh, impure tongues, they'll just substitute the word Adonai. Because to them, that's what God is. And rightly so, because God Himself describes Himself that way throughout Scripture. For example, Isaiah 6 verse 1. When the prophet is being given his commission to go preach, he receives this vision from God. He is called up in, in a vision form to the throne room of God, which from Isaiah's vantage point looks like the interior of the temple. It looks like stepping inside the temple of Jerusalem, except in a more grandiose, more remarkable, more um, uh, spiritually magnificent way. And he says, it happened in the year that King Uzziah died, that I saw the Adonai. I saw the Master. I saw God, but instead of saying God, He says Adonai. I saw the Master high and lifted up. I saw this Lord. I saw this Supreme One. I saw this Ruler. Probably why He uses the word Adonai, because that's the content and the context of the vision. I saw this kingly presence. I saw this Adonai, high and lifted up on a throne, whose train, like kings have their long flowing robes, His train filled the whole temple. Which is why when you're staying in the presence of God, He tells you take your shoes off your feet because don't step on my train where you stand as holy ground. Don't step on it with your dirty shoes. Take your shoes off. It's holy ground. His train of His uh, divine, glorious, royal robe covers all the floor of this temple-like throne room of God. 
And he sits there on his throne, and the angels surround his throne, not walk around, but hover around his holy presence, with six wings, two that cover their eyes from seeing his magnificence, two that allow them to fly around because they can't walk, because they have wings covering their feet, so that they don't stand on his train, because that is his magnificence, that is his holiness. This is a king, this is a ruler, this is the master. Isaiah calls him the Adonai. Similar word, just a different variation of it, or the way that it's phrased or, or, or described as, you know, words change and have to be tweaked in sentences. Look at Deuteronomy 10.17 as Moses is giving his speeches to the people and he's describing the, the singular remarkableness of God. Their God. Mind you, they came out of Egypt to place that had all kinds of gods. But the God that saved them from Egypt, the God that saved them from the Pharaoh who worshipped tons of gods, is a God unlike, unlike any other. He says, even your Lord, even the Lord, your God is God of gods. Egypt has Shu and Ra and Serapia and Isis and Osiris. They have all their gods. They have God of the sun. They have God of the stars. They have God of the dust. They have God of the grasshoppers. They have God of the locusts. They have all kinds of God of the Nile. But he is the God over all their gods. Their gods are glorified figments of their imagination. You have a God who has proven his reality, who has proven himself, who has proven him master over all other gods. He is the Adonai of gods, or translated here, the Adon Adon. He is the Adonai Adonai, a great God, a mighty. Let's take that same verse because you might probably notice there's a lot of God or God like words in that verse. So just consider it from a different perspective. What does he say? He says, for the Lord, probably your Bible capitalizes L-O-R-D, as opposed to other times when it's just L-O-R-D, that's Adonai. But here when it's all caps, that's Yahweh. For the Lord, your God, that's Elohim, we'll come to that in a second. For the Lord, your God, is God of gods, Elohim, Elohim. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the master of masters. He is the ruler of rulers. He is the Adon, Adon. And then Moses says, he is a great God, a mighty. Maybe you've heard this one, El Gabor, or El Gavor, probably sometimes it's pronounced. That's this right here. He is this mighty God. So that's Adonai. Let's segue, therefore, to El. What is God? He is mighty. What can you do? You can do a lot. Let's not undermine yourself. Let's not think too little of yourselves. You can accomplish some things. Some, somebody built this building. It's pretty impressive. Somebody built the car that drove you here. That's not bad. Someone figured out how to take gasoline and you know, oil and whatever and convert it into something that can propel your car to get you here. Somebody sewed the clothes on your back, which we're all thankful for. We're all here because somebody had the ability to do something. Have you ever just said, and a thing be? No, you cannot do that. But in the beginning, somebody just spoke, and there it was. In the beginning, a mighty one moved, and the universe became what it is. In the beginning, Moses says, the Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He could have said Yahweh. He'll use Yahweh later on in the Pentateuch. But he used this word. He wants to specify. He wants to single out. He wants to draw your attention to the powerful creator. The might of this. Just to, to plant a seed, you can do that. And to water a seed, you can do that. And to watch a seed grow into a tree, you can do that. But you cannot just say tree and there be a tree. To, to speak sun 
and there be the Son. Only God can do that. That's a mighty one. What's most remarkable, I mean, uh, you think about it ten times, you'll think of ten different remarkable things, but just for right now, think about this. What's the first thing that God made? In the beginning, this mighty one created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, what did he say? Let there be what? Light. Light is this universal speed limit around which the whole universe is forced to rely and forced to bend its will to. You cannot exceed the speed of light. We have known this at least since Einstein, that you cannot go farther than the speed of light, 300 meters a second. That's it. That's as far as it goes. You cannot, it's like 299 something, but that's rounded up. 300 meters per second. You cannot go faster than the speed of light. It is the constant of the universe. And if you believe in the Big Bang Theory, which you shouldn't, you'll be taught that it was light that first brought everything into what it is. That everything that went bang spread out by the speed of light. And if everything that is moved by the speed of light, then at least an atheistic scientist will concede that light was the first thing. Moses, who had never heard of that nonsense, even way back then, that what a critic would call this ignorant guy living on the other side of the world, he even recognized in the beginning God made light first. Let there be light. Can you turn on a light? Can you screw in a light bulb? Yes, good for you. You have that might. God just spoke and there was light. That's a mighty one. That's the El Ohim. Keep going. Genesis 33, verse 20. Context is uh, Jacob and Esau, the contentious sons of Isaac. Long-time rivals, bitter enemies, uh, constantly hated each other, one hunting the other frequently. Their descendants, who the nations would become, Israel and Edom, would always be enemies. But at least those two brothers, after their long, contentious lives, reunited, reconciled. And at the conclusion of their reconciliation, Jacob builds an altar in homage to God. And as he does so, he names the altar the El Elohi Israel, the one and only Mighty One of Israel. And that's not the nation Israel because that's not around yet. That's the person. The one and only mighty one who is my God. The personal God of me. My God that I get to say this is my God. The one and only God is my God. The mighty God to whom no other God can compare is my God. This God who can speak and make things come into existence chose me, singled me out, wanted me. That's pretty special for Israel, Jacob. It's, it's the same for you. He has chosen you. He has singled you out. He has allowed you to be saved by the death of His Son. He is your one and only mighty one of you. Substitute your name for Israel. He is this mighty one, but He is a personal God. The El Elohi. Another, Genesis 14, 18. After Abraham uh, rescued Lot from well, there's a big fiasco. There's a big whole thing. There's a whole big war. And after it was over, people started coming to Abraham and offering tithes and tributes to him. And here comes this person who's never before mentioned, won't be mentioned again for another thousand years. He gets a one-off reference in the Psalms. Won't be mentioned again for that for another thousand years. He gets a one-off reference in Hebrews. This person, Melchizedek, comes. But he doesn't come to pay tithes to Abraham. He comes, we find out later, for Abraham to pay tithes to him. But that's not the point. The point is that Abraham comes to, or Melchizedek, rather, comes to Abraham. And who is this Melchizedek? He is called a king of Salem and a priest of what my Bible calls the Most High God. But the original language, it is El Elyon. 
He is the priest of the Most High and Mighty, who is God. He is, Abraham is receiving these tithes and these um, uh, gifts of things from all of these other nations, uh, rulers, all these other kings, many of whom probably worshipped other gods. But here comes this high priest that no one has ever seen before, whose name is almost impronounceable. Here comes this guy, this random person, to whom Abraham gives tribute, to whom Abraham pays tithes. You find out when you read this, the account from the Hebrews text. And who is this person? He's just another king, but he's not just another king. He is a priest of the Most High God. Of all gods, he represents the priesthood of this God, this El Elyon, this most mighty and high and esteemed God. And then there is the El Elohim. Look at Psalm 50, verse 1, where David or the psalmist says, The El Elohim, even the Lord, has spoken. You have a Bible in your lap right now? That is not just a book written by some guy somewhere in some cave one time. That is not just a book compiled by some monks and scribes writing in some dusty church building somewhere in the year 600 A.D. What you hold in your hands is the work of divine inspiration. It is not, thus says Moses. It is not, thus says David. It is not, thus says Mark. Or thus says John. Or thus says Paul. You are reading, thus says the Lord. You are reading the work of the El Elohim. The work of the one and only Mighty One who moved through His Spirit of inspiration to put pen to paper for your appreciation, your study, your learning, your benefit, your ability to glorify Him in return and be blessed by the reading. I may do an absolutely terrible job with the sermon this morning, but just the fact that you're here listening means you get to be blessed. It is a blessing to open the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and read the Word of God. If I had written the Word of God, you could not be blessed by it. I don't care how good it is. Anybody just writes the Word. But when God writes a Word, you get to be blessed by God for reading it. God, the El Elohim, even the Lord has spoken. Hear what He says. Let's take this same verse and rejigger it a little bit. As we consider Yahweh. Because what does the psalmist say in the text? This mighty God, even the L-O-R-D, all caps probably in your Bible, the mighty God has spoken. Who is the mighty God? He is even Yahweh. A word full of consonants and no vowels. Hard to pronounce. Unlike any other, what does it mean? Best definition that we have. Because it's a word unlike any other. And it's a word singularly only ever applied to God. The self-existent one. This one who just is. We, see, you learn the meaning of words by context. You learn the meaning of words by using words. You don't find meaning in a dictionary. You find usage. You look up a word and you get multiple definitions of it for how to use it depending on the context. Here's all the different ways you could use that word. This word is unlike Adonai or even El. Because Adonai means mighty ones. But you know, you go to Psalm 8 and it uses the word Adonai, or excuse me, Elohim. Elohim in Psalm 8 to describe angels, not God. And Adonai could refer to any master if you wanted to use that word and water it down to mean anyone who's a ruler. He is the God of gods, the master of masters, but the word just means that. But there is no other being in existence, no other thing animate or inanimate that carries this moniker of just who is what He is. Who is who He is. 
So when he speaks, certainly you should listen. Let's go to the reading that we had a little bit ago that Casey read to us. Exodus 3, starting in verse 13. Moses is giving, being given his uh, um, uh, permission, his, his orders, marching orders, to go preach, his commission to go preach to Pharaoh. But he's not just going to go preach to Pharaoh. He's also got to go deliver this message to the children of Israel. They're the ones who've been crying to God. They're the ones who've been praying and begging for God to send a deliverer. Now Moses is the one being sent. Well, who is Moses? Moses is the guy. Last time they saw him, he had killed a guy, tried to hide the evidence, got caught, and took off running because he was scared. That's Moses. He's an ex-con as far as they know. And now 40 years later, he's going to come back into town. And this guy, last seen as a murderer on the run, is going to come back and say to the people, God sent me to be your leader. Well, some flags of red might go up, don't you think? So the people are going to hear Moses say, God has sent me to deliver you from the hand of Pharaoh. God has heard your cries and God has sent me to tell you I'm going to let you go. Their question to Moses, which Moses presumes will happen as he talks to God, is very reasonable. God, Moses is talking to God and he says, listen, I'm going to go to those people and I'm going to say to them, God has sent me to deliver you. And they're going to say to me, oh, you know God, huh? Well, what's his name? Well, what is his name? This is what Moses is saying to God. They're going to tell me, I don't know if I should trust you. You say you know God, what's his name? So Moses says to God, well, God, what is your name? What am I supposed to tell them when they say to me, what is your name? How do I designate you? How do I define you? How do I put you in a box? And I could put Ra in a box. That's the Egyptian god of the sun. I can put uh, uh, Isis, I think it is, is the god of death, the god of the underworld. It might be Osiris. I get, I get it mixed up. I can put this god in a box. This Ra is the god of the sun, but he's not the god of the moon. I can put him in that box. I can define him, and I can say, this is Ra, not any of these other gods. He is this. What do I call you? Uh-uh. No, I'm god of gods. Don't put me in a box. I don't get a name like that. I need to call you something, God. So God says, I am what I am. That's, that's not the name. That's God saying why he can't have a name. Why it wouldn't be appropriate. Why it would be so limiting to give him a name. What am I supposed to say when people ask your name? Moses, I am what I am. I'm not going to put myself in a box. So you tell the people, a verb sent you. You tell the people, I am sent you. Who? Who sent you, Moses? The I am. The I am what? Who is he? He is who he is. I am who I am. You tell him that this being who is unlike any other, who is incomparable, who is, who is uncategorizable, you tell them that that being, this one and only being, who is higher and more mighty and more majestic and more powerful than any other, he's the one who sent you. And then he goes to prove it with the ten plagues, each one of which nullifies the uh, box in which those Egyptian gods were in. This is Ra, the god of the sun. I'll turn the sun off. The sun off. This is Serapia, the god of locusts. I'll bring locusts from the dust, and so forth. Or boils from the dust, whatever it is. So here is this god who is supreme and powerful and bigger than all the others. What's your name? I am what I am. I just am. There is no one like me. So why would I need to limit myself by giving you a first, middle, last and a driver's license number. That's not how God operates. He doesn't need to operate that way. He has that benefit of just being who he is. Now go to number six. I'm going to wrap it up. Look at number six, verses 30, uh, 23 through 26. There's a 27 too, but just to start with. Look at number six, starting in 23. This is the famous priestly benediction. The, the words in the middle of this, or the, the big quotation, you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard this before, but here's where it comes from. So this is a quote within a quote within a quote. This is God telling Moses what to tell Aaron to tell the people. 
All right? So God says to Moses, Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons. That's the priesthood. And say to them on this wise, Moses, tell Aaron what to tell the people. Aaron, say to them like this, on this wise, this is how the priests will bless the people. This is how they will give a benediction to the people, how they will extol God's blessings onto the people. With these words, quote, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and, give, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift you up in his countenance upon you and give you peace. You probably heard that before. That, that's a very famous quotation. It is the benediction the priests were to give the people. What is that in the mind of God? Here's what he says, the very next phrase, and the priests will put my name on the children of Israel, and in so doing, I'll bless them. What is that name? It's the benediction the priest just gave. His name is the Lord blessing them and keeping them. His name is the Lord shining his glorious face upon them. His name is the Lord lighting his countenance on them and giving them peace. That's his name. It's not, oh, God's going to give us his name. Like, like the Egyptians are named after Egypt. The Ammonites are named after Ammon. The Midianites are named after Midian. So we're going to be named after God. No, no, you've already got that name. That's Israel. You're named after Israel. You're the Israelites. So then what name is God giving us? It's the blessings of God he's giving you. This one and only being doesn't need to slap his name onto you to make you special. He will make you special because he's special. His name is just what he is. He is blessing you. But if you ask that question to most people, they'll say, well, I guess the name he's giving them is Jehovah. That's the name of God, right? You can find certain quotations and texts in your Bible that say phrases like, whose name is Jehovah, but that doesn't mean that's on his driver's license, his name is Jehovah. It means his authority, his power, his singularness is best described as the self-existent one. He just is what he is. His power, his authority, his dominion, his blessings is self-evident, self-existing. Jehovah. Except it wasn't Jehovah. If you, if you look up the Hebrew word, where it's translated Jehovah, it's Y-H-W-H. So where did Jehovah come from? Jehovah is four letters, all consonants. The other word that is commonly used to describe God is Adonai, or in its basic, most rooted form, it's A-D-O-N-E. So you take the consonants of Yahweh, and you take the vowels of Adonai, and you put them together, and you get Yehovah, which as words evolve and change and things, you get Jehovah out of that. But that was never God's intention for you to single out that as his first name or something. Like, my name is Matthew, his name is Jehovah. No, that's oversimplifying it. The point of God being Yahweh is that he is this being who just is. And there is no one else like him. There is no other. Now, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, our Jewish friends have a, a slightly different look at it. They, they, they approach it differently. When they are writing about God, and they come to a time when they would need to say God, letter G-O-D, if they're writing in English, they won't write G-O-D. Often they'll just write G-D, because they don't want to profane the name of God, and by that I mean the name, quote, God, with, a, with a, just a you know, dirty old pen of man. When they are reading the text of the Bible that includes Yahweh, they won't dare say Yahweh when they're reading aloud, they'll just substitute Adonai. Or something like that. And then when they're talking about God, they'll usually say Hashem, which is just the name. Who made the universe in six days? Hashem. The name did. Whose name? The name. A name so singular, a person so unique, a being so unique, he doesn't even need a name. He just is the name. And they do that because they don't want to defile God, as they perceive it, with their 
defiled tongue. They have sinned. They're stained. And they don't want to sully up the name of God by speaking it with their tongue. And I can appreciate the thought behind that. But Jesus has introduced me to God. Jesus has washed my sins away. And He has allowed me, according to Hebrews 4.16, to come boldly. To Remember Isaiah 6.1? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw a king on a throne. The throne of God to an Israelite is in the most holy place of the temple. You go beyond the holy place where is the, chair, the, um, uh, the golden lampstand and the table of the showbread and the altar of incense, and they go beyond that through the curtain to this most holy place, this small little box of a room that just has one object inside, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence would set. And they thought of that as God's throne where God sat and was merciful to His people. Thus the phrase, the throne of mercy, the mercy seat, the throne of grace, all the same phrase. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, says we have the privilege to come boldly to God's mercy seat. To approach He who Isaiah saw high and lifted up. To approach this mighty One. To approach this Maker of all. To approach this God above all gods. This unspeakable, unknowable, unseeable One. You get to walk right up to Him boldly and receive the grace and mercy and help that comes thereby. You are invited by Jesus to speak His name, to know His name, to call on Him for mercy and salvation. Let me leave you with one more text. Tie it all together and leave you with something to go home with. Look at Colossians 2, 6-10. through Listen to what Paul says about that Jesus the second person of the Godhead, the human being born of Mary, but who is much more than that. Paul says, Colossians 2.6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you have been taught by Him, abounding therein with thanksgiving to Him. Beware lest anyone spoil you, ruin you like bad meat through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. Well, what's so special about Christ? In Him, that person, dwells all the fullness, all the fullness, that's redundant for emphasis sake, of the Godhead. He inhabits all of Father, Son, Spirit. He is 100% God and 100% man. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are made whole through Him. You are complete in Him. That being who inhabits the Elohim, the Mighty One. That being who is this self-existent One. That being who is this Master of Masters, Adonai. He is all of that. And what does Paul say? You have received that. Not this great and powerful, amazing being has taken you, but rather you have taken him. You have received him. He has made himself a gift for you to enjoy. You have received him. You have planted a seed in him and been watered by him so you could sprout yourself to be something magnificent in his sight. He has made you what you are, rooted and built up in him, and you get to be made whole through him. You better believe you can say his name. Jesus has given you that. Through Him, He has invited you to have a relationship with God. So if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, that One who inhabits all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, 
died on a cross, shed his blood so that it could wash away the sins that defiled you, that stained you, that made you unworthy to speak his name, much less call on him for salvation. Now you can call on him. You can obey his gospel. You can put your sins to death. You can bury them in a watery grave. And you can rise to walk in newness of life singing his name and thanks to it on your tongue forevermore. If you are a Christian, but you've stopped respecting the name of Jesus, you've stopped respecting God and his blessings, his authority, his dominion, his power, repent and come back to the Lord. If we can encourage you in some way, let us know how right now as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin 414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.